Welcome to Hollywood Obsessed with Tony Miros, a podcast that celebrates our endless fascination with the iconic people, locations, and history of the entertainment capital of the world. If you're as obsessed with Hollywood as Tony is, or would like to be, get ready to enjoy another exciting brand new episode of Hollywood Obsessed. Now, here's your host, Tony Miros. Hello, friends. This is your host, Tony Miros, speaking to you from the heart of Tinseltown. On this episode of Hollywood Obsessed, I'm speaking with actor Gordon Thompson, who's best known for playing the evil yet dashing Adam Carrington on one of my all-time favorite shows, the 1980s primetime soap opera, Dynasty. Originally from Canada, Gordon began his television career in 1978 on the Canadian serial High Hopes. After moving to New York in 1981, he played the role of Egyptologist Aristotle Benedict White on the ABC daytime soap opera, Ryan's Hope. Having received acclaim for several stage performances, including Love's Labor's Lost, Godspell, and Joe Orton's Loot, he was personally chosen by Aaron Spelling to play the role of Adam on the mega-hit show Dynasty, which launched him to TV stardom. For seven years, he played the villainous Adam on Dynasty, earning him a Golden Globe nomination in 1988, along with three consecutive Soap Opera Digest Award nominations. After Dynasty was canceled in 1989, he returned to daytime soaps and joined the series Santa Barbara on NBC in the role of Mason Capwell. He later appeared on the daytime drama Sunset Beach, The Young and the Restless, Passions, and Days of Our Lives. During his extraordinary TV career, he's appeared on several hit shows, including Fantasy Island, Finder of Lost Loves, Glitter, The Love Boat, and Beverly Hills 90210, as well as guest starred in a variety of other series such as Murder, She Wrote, The Nanny, Baywatch, and the USA Network crime drama, Silk Stockings. In recent years, he was featured in Wolfgang Peterson's Poseidon, a remake of The Poseidon Adventure, as well as the Academy Award-nominated film, Little Miss Sunshine, and the title role in the LGBTQ short film, The Liberator. Currently enjoying his 50th year as an actor, Gordon continues to work in the theater, film, and television. Luckily, he's here with me today to tell me all about his astonishing career, So let's get to it and welcome him to the podcast. Hello, Gordon. Thank you so much for being my guest on Hollywood Obsessed. It's an enormous compliment. I mean, I'm an old fart. I've been around for far too long. And to have anybody pay attention like this is, it's an enormous compliment. Thank you. Seriously. Well, listen, I can't tell you what a huge Dynasty fan I was in in the 1980s. I never miss an episode every Wednesday night, so I apologize ahead of time if I get super enthusiastic when we start talking about that show. <laughs> Go right ahead. I think super enthusiasm is never boring. Trust me. No, it, it was a lot of fun to do, um, and it was a, sort of a big surprise for me because I came directly from Toronto to mm-hmm. do – I arrived in Los Angeles, I think, July the 5th, and I was on the set July the 9th. So it was way speedy and um, hardly any chance to get to know the city. I still don't know it very well. I've been here for 40 years. It's just, um, it was a very fast change for me. And the introduction, I could not have asked for a nicer one. The job, the people, the, everything, the role, it was all just just sort of flaw-free, actually. Yeah. I, I remember when we I saw you and John James and Jack Coleman perform Cocktails with the Carringtons in Palm Springs. And that was such a treat. And you guys looked like you were having a ball. How what, what was that like for you to do that? It was, it was a big treat. It was JJ's idea. 
um, he was, you know, thinking about, I'm not doing anything right now. And Jack and Gordon, maybe they're free too. So he put together, this, he brought up this idea, and we got together and chatted about it. And it sort of figured itself out. And then Jack involved the very brilliant Nick Marzok, who did compose all the music, who did the, he ran the show. It's mm. his videos. Uh, he he collected and, and collated all the stills that we use. It was bliss on a stick. It really was. It was, um, it was none of us had worked together on a stage before, and we'd all done a lot of theater anyway, and we've all sung in shows before. So on all that was just sort of very serendipitous, actually. And yeah. we just had an awfully good time. And then you did it again at the Roosevelt, right, in Hollywood? Yes, we did, twice. Joan came on the second evening, as did a lot of um, Colby and Dynasty Pals. It was a sold-out house that night. And it was Joan loved it, I'm glad to say. Um, and she, she had one comment to say, to say after we finished and she joined blah, 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 said, darling, you should have been Mina. I thought to myself, no, Joan, mean is your show. Our <laughs> show is not mean, and we aren't. As I, you noticed that, I hope. We really didn't take rake anybody over the coals. We were no. a little bit unpleasant about Esther Shapiro because <laughs> of the alien storyline. Yeah. And, but that was really only as mean as we got. Yeah, no, no. It was a, it was a lovely event and lovely, and everybody was so thrilled. All the fans were watching and listening to you guys tell your stories, and and then afterwards, you know, I had the pleasure of meeting the three of you backstage, and I had the I had the time of my life, and and then JJ and I started talking, and and then he decided he was going to do the podcast because I asked him, and then he connected me with you, and here we are, and I'm so thrilled. I really am, Gordon. I can't tell you. Oh, thank you. I am too, and I must say that Dynasty is sort of, for a certain generation, a very, it's a brother, it's an instant calling card. Because wherever we do the show, people will come to the show because they're fans of the show. They were fans of the show when mm -hmm. it was on in the 80s. So the audience that we have whenever we do the show is enthusiastic from the get-go. We don't have to win them over. We have to maybe convince them that, yes, these three old farts up there are in fact those faces we see on the screen. It's very, very dicey, I've got mm. to tell you. Being I'm 78, JJ's about to be 67, Jack is now 65, and there we are in our 30s and 40s, 20s and 30s and 40s, on, on the screen behind us, and it's a little unnerving. You think, well, yes, time does pass, and we do all age, don't we? It's a sort of big reminder, a bit of a slap in the face, that the time does go by. It's but the good thing about the profession that you're in, well, I'm in it too, but you're on camera, is that you're, you're, you will be that age, that 30-year-old, forever, in, the, in people who ever see the show. So that's kind of a gift to you and your fellow actors, is that there's a time capsule, and you will never grow old in that time capsule. I mean, it's Dorian Gray. Oh, my God. Okay. And that probably applies to it. Tell Joan. Joan's going to be 90 
May 23rd this year. Oh, wow. And, yeah, exactly. And, boy, does she look good, I have to tell you. She really she does. does. Yeah. So you, you, you are originally from Canada. Um, yes. And, and I, I read a little bit of your bio, and something that most people don't know, you have a, a very high Q of 154. I have a what? An IQ. You have a very high IQ, I read somewhere. Is that not true? I, it used to be. No, it was not <laughs> one, never 154. It was measured at 147. Oh. But that's, that is a very long time ago. And <laughs> it's gone down since then. And it's <laughs> IQs do. You know, you, 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 your brain gets tired. Mine did. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm... I'm really only 14, now I'm four. <laughs> you know, it's just Jesus, perfect. Well, you have to maintain yourself. You've got to, you know, look after your body, and you've got to be ready to work at the drop of a hat, at no matter what. I'm lucky me, I am now retired officially. Social Security kicks in, pensions kick in. Oh, it's very nice. Really. <laughs> well, my point being is that, uh, it's, you know, most people think, well, with a high IQ, you could have been anything, but you decided to go into acting. And how did that, were you always into acting? Were you, did you watch the films? Were you a fan of movie stars? Was that something you always wanted to do? That's a very good question. And it's a very tough one to answer because in, I grew up in Montreal and I think I didn't, Really, I went to um, uh, the private school that my father had been to. I got an old boy's scholarship. That's mm -hmm. where I learned what my IQ was then, when I was 12. Well, right. time goes by. Um, I have no idea why I decided I, that acting was for me. I was 18. Um, I think uh, and movies were hard to get into in Montreal, in Quebec. Um, I think... You had to be 16, and it wasn't. It was not a habit. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There was nothing. No, there was, I was not inspired by a movie star or a movies period or theater or even much television. I have no idea where this came from. I really don't. Wow. And we were talking 50 years ago. Yeah. It was a 60 years. No, 60 actually. Yeah. I was eight, 60 years ago. Um. So my memory is a little. <laughs> but no, I do know that I realized I I remember going to an audition for a, a production at, at McGill, or mm -hmm. the university I attended in Montreal, and I went up and I sat down and it was early September or mid September, and I suddenly I chickened out, and I went. I said, I'm sorry, I, I have a term paper to do which is a very lame and stupid excuse because nobody has a term paper first thing in a term. Anyway, I went downstairs and it was raining. And mm. I had one of those sort of, I realized no existential conversations with myself. I thought, Gordon, either you continue on into the rain, you get wet and go home, and you wind up being a second-rate teacher of English, probably mm. an alcoholic, or... You go back upstairs and see if you actually can do this. And that's what I did. And I went back upstairs, and they, they sort of, you know, welcome back. They were very nice about it. And I did get a role. I think it was Seven Nights a Dream or something. 
And I thought, well, maybe one of the two lovers. No, I was one of the clowns, which was wonderful for me. And yeah. it, then the next year, I was 19. That, ooh, at the end of that year, I, I went to Stratford and saw Stratford, Ontario, the Shakespeare Festival up there. Um, yeah. And I saw King Lear, Time of Athens, and Twilight and Cressida. Um, boom, boom, boom. And I thought, this is where I want to be. And I auditioned the next year, when I was 19, for Michael Langham, who had artistic director. And you probably don't know who he is. At the time, Michael Langham was one of the most eminent Shakespearean directors in the English-speaking world. He mm. worked with and directed Olivier and Schofield and Guinness and oh, wow. everybody you've ever heard of. Yeah. And um, I did my audition. And I finished, and he said, very good, excellent. Well, I sort of floated off the words. I thought God has spoken, because he was, I revered this man. Yeah. And um, whenever I feel too insecure to stand, I remember Michael Langham's assessment, and um, I feel instantly much, much better. It is not something... Had I, I was very lucky to know so early that this is what I had to do. I had no choice, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I'd wanted to be a doctor, God, or a lawyer. <laughs> Something, you know, the unemployment rate for actors, as you probably know, is over 95% all the time. Yeah. And uh, it's just everybody who's within Dynasty, everybody who makes a living at this, charter members of the King Lucky Club. We really are. <laughs> and if you don't know that, you've got to go away and learn how lucky you are. Yeah. Um, talent, good, decent, healthy talent is the rare, is, is very, very, it's rife. It's all over the place. Mm-hmm. The toughest thing in the world for anybody, especially I think in my business, is good luck. Yeah. That's what, where are you born? What is your nationality? Being a Canadian was no advantage. I I must tell you, one of the few things I had sensibly asked for when I signed the contract to do Dynasty with Aaron Spelling, I asked, please obtain and pay for my green card. Oh. Well, four years later, four years of working on this highly visible, successful show, paying lots of taxes and employing other people as well, four years it took for my green card to arrive. Oh, my. That's a long time. It is, yeah. And I was very I was very lucky. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So well, the, I mean, the immigration thing is a problem. And nobody ever thought, nobody thinks that, you know, you're working, you're on a hit show, and, you, you know, you know what, if, what if they had deported you? Then Adam would have disappeared for no reason. Um, yes, exactly. Yep. yep. But th- when you started doing theater, I read that you had done a production of Godspell with yes. this amazing cast with Gilda Radner, Martin Short, and Eugene Levy. Oh, my goodness. What was that like? Well, gee. That was 73. The show opened in Toronto in 72 with Victor Garber, who was the first Jesus, yeah. and a man called Don Scardino, who has mm-hmm. now become, I believe, a producer, was mm-hmm. the second. I was Jesus number three 
in that production. And then when I left to do a play in Stratford, Eugene took over for the last month of the run. Oh. Um, it was, have you seen Godspell ever? Yes, I love that. You have. I love that play. Well, it's mm-hmm. an extraordinary show. Mm-hmm. And the, the role of Jesus, you're never off stage. It's two hours of high-impact aerobics plus singing plus talking. Mm-hmm. And in the last week of the production I was in, um, a week in June, a week sometime in June, um, I had to commute from Toronto to Stratford to begin rehearsals for A Month in the Country, the play I was doing at Stratford in the Avon Theatre, and mm-hmm. return to Toronto to do eight shows of, G- of Godspell that week. So yeah. it was five or you know four or five days of commuting, and the last performance of Godspell uh, in the middle of a song called All for the Best... Um, there's a lot of very busy dance steps. I tore cartilage in my right knee. Oh no! And I, it, <laughs> and I really couldn't move much for the rest of the show. And it turned out to be, <laughs> in my opinion, anyway, my most successful performance because I had air to breathe. I wasn't gasping for breath every right. time I stopped moving at it. I didn't have to dance that the second act, and mm-hmm. it was it made a huge difference. It was the most demanding thing I've ever done. It's, there's a Godspell knee. Everybody who played Jesus got a case of Godspell knee, and mine happened my last performance. It wow. was very tough. The cast was, as you can tell, just extraordinary. Gilda was one of the two people I've ever known in this business who who if you met, you instantly adored. You just couldn't resist her. Mm-hmm. Um, truly, she was a magical, effortlessly adorable. She, she couldn't do anything wrong. Um, she was just everything you wish she was is exactly who she was. And the other mm-hmm. person is Linda Evans. Linda, I've been asked to describe, and... I think I've come with a very good one. She's like the sun coming up. She yeah. truly is. She is that. She's everything again. You hope she is. She actually is from the get-go. And those two women were both magical. And I was very, very lucky to work with Gilda as intensely as I did. Mm-hmm. With Linda, we didn't work that much together. But we were members of the same cast and spent time together and got to know each other a bit. It was, she's bliss. They both were bliss. Lucky me. I've been a very, very lucky man. You also modeled, didn't you? Were you a model for us a little time before you got on to Ryan's Hope? Um, oh, yes. I, modeling was my... Most actors have to wait tables or something at night to maintain their... to pay the rent. Right. Um, I didn't have to do that. And modeling is something I was, and never was never grand. It was never Giorgio Armani in Milan or something. It was all, you know, Sears catalog, literally. Right. Um, catalog modeling, um, and if I, which meant that I could work at night, and if I got a TV job and I couldn't, I would just book out. And it was one of those lovely, flexible jobs that paid the rent more often than not. I mm-hmm. remember <laughs> playing Jesus in Godspell eight shows a week. For $234 a week, that's what 
all of us made in that production, which was not a lot of money. Trust no. me. I would, you know, spend a day modeling pants for Eaton's catalog and then go and play Jesus at night. And it was, it was the, 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 the contrast <laughs> in the two jobs was ludicrous. <laughs> it really was. And it went by one point. I was, I, the industrial shows were, if you could get one, were boom, massive. You made 600 bucks a week for six mm. weeks. And I did conduct for General Motors, Chrysler. Uh, it was I, I, the same year I did Godspell and A Month in the Country, the play in, by Turgenev in Stratford. And then the Chrysler Industrial that year, that was nine months of work. And mm. that's, again, very lucky that I was able because industrials meant you had to talk a lot yeah. because industrials introduce, in this case, the cars for the coming year to, right. across the country in huge arenas because the actual cars were there and driven on. And a cast of, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 would sing and dance around the cars and talk about the cars. So I was able to sing and dance and talk for the industrials. And I was able to sing and dance and talk for Godspell. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the Chrysler show that year, one they used to adapt popular songs from what the songs people were new and hit parades right. and stuff for yeah. industrial musical songs. Um, they didn't do Day by Day, oh. but they did do a song called Turn Back, Oh Man, which mm-hmm. was in, in our show, was sung by a very voluptuous girl called Peggy Mann, who had a wonderful body in a tiny gold bikini, singing, Turn on two <laughs> trucks, the pickup and the van. I mean, come on. <laughs> Jesus. From, from Godspell to turn on to trucks in a little gold bikini. It was <laughs> the same melody, but different. It was hysterical. <laughs> and it, again, the sense of humor was essential. We all had to have one of those to of survive. <laughs> sure. Um, when you uh, got the job um, on Ryan's Hope, uh, uh, was that a big? Well, I mean, it was a big break for you, but what, you had to move to New York. So was the culture shock huge for you? No, I was. As a matter of fact, um, there's a man called Tom Lazanti who's written mm-hmm. a book about Ryan's Hope, and he and I chatted a lot. And the book's being, is being published, I'm very pleased to say, for Tom. Um, we chatted, and apparently in the booth, where all the, the director sits, the producer sits, to watch the show mm-hmm. on the floor with the, the three cameras and all that stuff, um, they thought I was doing drugs because I, I lost a lot of weight. It, I wasn't, I've never done a drug except alcohol and cigarettes in my life. Right. It wasn't that. I was in love with New York City. I was, I've never been happier to move to a city in my life. It was New York happened to me. And I wound up, I weighed 152 pounds. That's what I weighed when I began to do Dynasty. Trust me, I'm not that now. Um, <laughs> I have 29-inch waist. It was just, it was because I fell in love with New York. I was have you have you lived there? Oh yeah, I grew up there. So lots of walking in New York. <laughs> it, yes, because it's great city to walk in. 
Los yeah. Angeles, one of the big problems with L.A., it's not a city to walk in much, no, which is not. really a bore. I love to walk. Yeah. And um, New York was heaven, literally heaven to me. It was just wonderful. Cast of Ryan's Hope was fabulous. The problem with Ryan's Hope for me was the storyline. I played an Egyptologist right. called Aristotle Benedict White. Good mm-hmm. God. And um, <laughs> the, the writers of Ryan's Hope, Claire Labine and Paul Mayer, had done some work for a director in Toronto called Leon Major. I had auditioned for Leon. I'd never got a job through Leon, but they wanted somebody who didn't sound American to play yeah. their Egyptologist. And they approached Leon, and for some reason, I have no idea why, he recommended me. We met, they hired me, and to play in Egypt. Egyptology? The show was about an Irish bar in New York. <laughs> That's what had Egyptology had to do with it. Clara Bine apparently had been to Egypt the previous year. She fell in love with the country and its history and everything it entailed for her, and she was determined to get it on her show. Yeah. Well, it was an absolutely ridiculous idea. It was anomalous beyond belief. And, I, of course, I had a great time. And it was a wonderful cast, wonderful experience, and it, it was bliss. But the audience didn't cotton to it much at all because I mean we were I mean poor Faith played by Karen Morris Gowdy had to, I, she reminded me of Marit Carrar mm. this Pharaoh's wife yeah. whose tomb I have explored please and it was you know and, and poor Karen had to get all gussied up as an Egyptian queen a Cleopatra and we had to it was insane I got to wear white tie which was fun but yeah. it was ridiculous and the cast couldn't have been nicer a lovely producer called Ellen Barrett because I, I they, my 13 week contract was up after 10 and she wanted to give me a party because they always do when a a cast member goes and I begged her not to. I hadn't earned it. I had a wonderful time, but really the character was so out of place. You know, it's it's like golden girls when the the cheesecake in the living room, that was about it. But the minute they went somewhere exotic, you, you lose your audience and Ryan's hope lost its audience. To a large degree, I don't mean they deserted the show, but they really couldn't wait for this Egyptian crap to get get on with it, and you know, let let the real, let Maeve and and Johnny and all the let the real people, the Ryans, back to their lives, and forget mm-hmm. about this Egyptian crap. Anyway, that's I had a great time. I'm grateful to it, and also I think that show literally, because it was a network soap. Somebody yeah. must have been watching, because I'm convinced that led directly to me being invited at the age of 37 to be a part of the ABC Talent Development Program. That included John John James, Tom Hanks, Donna Mills. A lot of people went through that program, yeah. and I was I'd been acting at that time for 16, 17 years already. Um, mm. Most of those kids, and I mean kids, were, as you heard 
from if you were paying very close attention to my co-stars in that show, they describe their beginnings in the business. And mm -hmm. Dynasty was the first job on film, for instance, for both Jack and J.J. Yeah. Um, they'd done popes before uh, and theater before. but And I had done everything in 16, 17 years in Canada. I'd done stage and television and film and radio. And I'd done all that stuff. So I was by no means a neophyte. So, but somehow ABC offered me this chance, and that led to me traveling to L.A. to meet people and audition and to, to do a test with Joan for the job. Yeah. And I got the job. But I was, I'm 13 years older than Jack. I'm 11 years older than J.J., and yet we all had to look contemporary Right. And thanks to my DNA, I looked their ages, you know. Well, in it's interesting you say that because, yeah, you, you can't tell that you, that you were older than them at all. And I wanted to ask you, though, now, did your character, your character was not in season one at all, right? You came in for season two like Joan did. No, um, I came season, beginning of season three. Oh, season three. Okay, so had you seen Dynasty already before you joined? Yes, I had. I had not been, I don't think I'd been a regular viewer, but I certainly knew okay. the show, and I knew that it was, a, it was becoming a very big hit. It wasn't a hit its first year. It was called Oil. Um, and then year, at the end of that year, Joan's character made her first appearance, yeah. I think, at Stephen's trial. At Blake's trial. Blake's trial. That's it. And oh, Blake, okay. Anyway, so Joan made her appearance truly at the beginning of season two, and that's when the show began to pick up momentum. And Aaron actually was heard to say, to thank Joan specifically for saving his show. And she did. Joan had mm -hmm. always wanted to be a star. She was an extremely good actor, always. And she would rather be called actress, by the way. By the way. <laughs> um, so she, she brought a graduate. It's so beautiful that John Gilgood told her, darling, nobody would take you seriously, and they refused to in Great Britain. And yeah. she looks like a movie star anyway, an old-fashioned one, and she wanted to become one. And with this role, she realized what a wonderful part it is, and it mm -hmm. is. Yep. Um, she just took it by the teeth and just tore through it and enraptured people around the world. And there's no question, everybody who, you run Dynasty? Yes. What's Joan Collins really like? Is she really a bitch? It's <laughs> always the question we get asked. Well, the answer is no, she's not. Um, she's a, an actor. She can't, she doesn't edit herself, so she can be a little abrupt at times. But no, she ain't a bitch. Um, but the point is that, that she paved the way and our, when we first met, and I told this story in Cocktails with the Carringtons, um, I, I was in, since then I just realized, thanks to both J.J. and Jack, that Joan did my screen test with me. Now, it's very unusual for the star, one of the major stars of any series, to test with a newcomer. Mm -hmm. That's an unusual set of circumstances, yeah. and I don't know 
who persuaded her or what, but she actually did my test with me. And I remember I approached the soundstage to do the test, and she had just emerged from the soundstage. She was gussied up as a madam in a turn-of-the-century brothel in a movie of the week she was making for Aaron called The Wild Women of Chastity Gulch. Mm. Please. And um, <laughs> she looked sensational, of course. She'd, uh, you have to. Hello, Miss Collins. I'm Gordon Thompson. Oh, yes. You had to test for the part of my son. It's ridiculous, darling. You're much too old. <laughs> well, she was right. But it took me four years to understand what a really nasty thing that was to say <laughs> to anybody who was about to test for a role, which clearly would change the life of any actor who got the job. Right. As it did for me. But then we did the test, and she figured out I knew what I was doing. And this, the, the, this scene, I remember thinking, they've written every trap a soap opera script can set for you. And I think they're doing it on purpose to see how well I can avoid all these traps. Mm. Well, I was paying them much too much a huge compliment. It wasn't. It was riddled <laughs> with traps, which I, because I'm good at technically what I have to do, and I managed to avoid them all. And I, she took note of this, I'm sure, and that's one reason why I got the job. But that wound up, that scene was the first scene that Adam and Alexis have in the series. They hadn't changed a word. <laughs> I was very lucky. I, apparently, I had a writer assigned to me early on for, for instance, his first scene with the woman he thought was his grandmother, yeah. played by a wonderful character actress called Lorene Tuttle. Uh, Lorene, if you have ever seen a movie with Monroe called Don't Bother to Knock, she plays the woman for whom Marilyn is being the babysitter. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Yeah, I forgot she, about I mean, that. There she, this was her, I think, one of her last jobs. She died, I think, a year or two later. This mm -hmm. is 82. When I saw her, I thought, my God, they're doing this up, Brown. Because, I mean, she was this really one of those great legendary Hollywood character actors. Fabulous. And I, it was, to this day, remains the scene I enjoyed the most in the entire seven years I was on the show, without question. Working with this with this wonderful actress, I remember asking something from the crew. Yes, of course, it was supplied without a thought, without a question. The scene went well, and I remember the moment where when Michael Torrance, which is what I thought I was, is convinced. In fact, he's actually Adam Alexander Carrington, and I get a bit of a shiver every time I think of that scene, seriously. Because it was the moment, literally on camera, where Adam appears for the very first time as himself. And it was just, it was one of those sort of, again, existential moments for me as an actor and Adam as a character. Like me facing the rain after the audition, I thought I better not screw up. Mm -hmm. At McGill, it was just one of those moments, and it is today to this day. I feel the same way. Thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with the wonderful Gordon Thompson. 
On the next episode of Hollywood Obsessed, my conversation with Gordon continues as we discuss the infamous Moldavian massacre cliffhanger, what it was like when he found out that Dynasty was abruptly cancelled after nine seasons, and the reason why he didn't reprise the role of Adam in the Dynasty reunion TV movie. All that and more on the next episode of Hollywood Obsessed. This is your host, Tony Miros. See you next time. Thanks for joining us this week on Hollywood Obsessed. Make sure to visit our Facebook page, Hollywood Obsessed Podcast, where you can subscribe to the show so you'll never miss a single episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in every other Monday for our next episode. That's a wrap.